Well, while we're doing that, Dominic, come on up, man. This guy's, you know what? It's always such a cool thing when a young kid goes off to college. You know, isn't that like a cool thing? And, and we just kind of want to honor this young man as he's uh, on his way out. I mean, he'll be back in a couple months, right? I mean, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that. Where are you going to school? Dixie State. Dixie State, Dixie State up in Utah, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and what are you going to major in? You're undecided. How many of you guys were undecided when you started college? Yeah. How many of you guys are still undecided? Yeah, see, see, it's all good. It's all good. Let's pray. Father, just thank you for this young man, his heart, and we know that um, he's on his way uh, to the mission field, and he's on his way to uh, take all the things that he's learned and all the things that he's absorbed in his mind and his heart and to, to walk that out. And there are others as well who are going off to different things, Lord, that are graduating, but we just wanted to honor him because he's... Um, I mean, uh, this is last Sunday here for a couple months, and go before him, God, this, that this would be just the most exciting time in his life, and we pray for divine appointments uh, that uh, you have ordained, and that we pray you would keep him from temptation as he's uh, out on his own, uh, but it's a good thing, God, because your spirit goes with us wherever we go, and so, Lord, that uh, you would prepare uh, Dixie College for him and prepare him for Dixie College, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said Amen, amen. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's cool. Good job, Mama. <laughs> um, we all blessed last week by um, Joel Richardson. Yeah, yeah, me too. And uh, I just wanted to also thank you for the amazing love offering that you gave. Uh, it's, it's a known fact. When you come to Living Grace Church, don't come for an honorarium. Uh, come for a love offering because you guys just pour out and pour out and pour out. And so I just wanted to say for all of you that were able to give, I'm sure that Joel, uh, you know, he's going through a real difficult, difficult time right now. And even like as soon as the service was over, he's on the phone with his wife because of some health issues that she's going through. And uh, I just kind of feel like, like God was just confirming and him and blessing him and honoring him. Uh, as he, as he, you know, found out what that love offering was. But I, I think you guys participated in that. And as, as hard as it was for him to be here, I'm sure the first thing he wanted to do was get on the plane and get out of here on, uh, on Saturday night. But he stayed and he honored uh, his commitment and blessed you guys. And I think God honored him, right? Doesn't God honor those who honor him? Yeah, yeah, he does. Amen. Well, anyway, our, our, our message this morning is we're back in the book of Revelation, and it's called Con uh, Conversations Above and Chaos Below. Conversations Above and Chaos Below. And we'll be in Revelation chapter 6, and it, it seems that a man had arrived at the pearly gates in heaven, and there was an angel there to meet him who had a clipboard, and this angel was taking down some pertinent information, you know, name, address, uh, the vital statistics that they needed to know. And then the angel said to him, listen, can you give me a story of, of, of some sort of sacrifice or something that you did that was a blessing to other? I mean, you know, I mean, give me your best shot. What, what, what have you done? And, uh, and the man says, well, you know, that's gl I'm glad that you asked that question because I do have something that, 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 that I think is pretty impressive. And he says, you know, uh, I was uh, walking down the street and uh, I saw an older lady that was being beaten by this motorcycle gang member and you know, I went over there and I kicked his motorcycle over and, I, and I, I gave him a good shot to the head and I told the lady, run for your life. And, uh, and the angel goes, wow, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that's pretty impressive. 
So, so tell me, when did this happen? And the man said, oh, about two or three minutes ago. About two or three minutes ago. This is why I'm in heaven now. <laughs> I was really expecting a little more laughter out of that one. I, re I really was. I, I'll, I'll make sure I won't use that one again. Yeah, I'll make sure. Make a note of that. Make a note of that, guys. You know, there are many good examples of, of worthy causes that people have given their lives for. But would you agree with me that there is no more worthy a cause to give your life for than that of Jesus Christ, who uh, laid down his life for us? And you know what? Maybe, though, it's not as much if you could lay down your life for Jesus, but maybe the real question is, is can you live for him every day? Maybe that's the bigger question. Uh, a lot of us would like to think, you know, I think if I got in that situation, this, that, and the other, well, you know, I pray that I never get in that situation uh, because uh, you can't plan for it when the time comes. You don't know that it's going to be coming, but what you can do is try to live your life for him so that if those kinds of things ever happen, that you will already have made your decision. Amen? Well, here's a definition for eschatology. How many of you know what eschatology is? Okay, well, we've got some, some, some folks in here that, that, that are um, studious folks in the word. It's from the Greek uh, uh, eschatos, meaning to, meaning last, and ology, meaning the study of. And so the uh, Oxford Dictionary describes eschatology as the department of theological science concerned with the four, uh, four last things, uh, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Now, when Jesus was walking the earth 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people had an eschatology. They had a belief system about how the end would happen. And so there's a lot of talk about eschatology right now because we believe we're living in the last days. And so that's a phrase that you hear a lot, or the end times, or the tribulation, and those are things we'll talk about. They believe that before the Messiah uh, would come, that there would be national and international turmoil that would breed... Uh, an expectation and a groaning for the Messiah to come. These are what the people in, during the time of Jesus believed, okay? Uh, national and international turmoil that would breed this expectation and even a, a, a longing and a groaning for the Messiah to come, okay? That in the midst of that turmoil, an Elijah-like messenger would come before him and that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom and you have to understand that the Jewish people of this day, of his day, were subjugated to the Romans. And they were looking for a military leader who would institute his kingdom and bring them back to the glory that they once had, you know, even during the days of David and King Solomon. They believed that the nations would rise up and defy him and that he would defeat them and that there would be a gathering of the Jews from all around the civilized world and that Israel would reign with the Messiah. So the disciples who were there with Jesus, who believed that he was the Messiah, believed that they were walking through number one through number three. There was certainly national and international turmoil. They believed that John the Baptist was that Elijah-like messenger who would come as the forerunner before Jesus. And then here is the Messiah who would come to establish his kingdom. And they walked with him for three, three and a half years. And they were so excited. They saw the miracles. They saw him raise the dead. And they couldn't wait for this great nation to once again rule the world. And then he was crucified. <laughs> Uh, expectation dashed and then he rose from the dead 
And then he talked about a kingdom that was unlike the kingdom that, there was, that they were expecting. Oh, that kingdom will come. In fact, didn't Jesus say we were to pray that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. By the way, if you weren't here last week, I would suggest you get both copies of Joel Richardson's DVDs. They are available online at livinggrace.net as well. And that you listen to them because one is about the kingdom of God and the other is about uh, uh, how to share your faith or how to under better understand uh, 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 Islam and, and Muslims in general. Get, get both of those. Get both of those. I, I highly recommend. You might want to make some extra copies, guys, because you know, they'll be coming back there uh, looking for those. Okay? And so based on the fact that 2,000 years ago the disciples were believing that this uh, messianic kingdom was going to come at any moment and that it really and it hasn't yet. In one sense it has as we've been looking through the book of Revelation and the uh, honor that the, the lion and the, uh, of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God receives, but uh, it hasn't been established yet on earth. Jesus is not literally reigning and ruling on earth, right? No, he's not. No, he's still sovereign and he's still God, but he's not reigning and ruling on earth yet. And so based on that, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about, you know, exactly how should we be look, living our lives based on this. Knowing that it could come at any time. First we should be looking. Everybody say looking. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godly, godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We should be looking. Are you looking, living grace? Are you, are you looking? Are you every once in a while looking up, thinking, you know what? Today could be the day. Today could be that day. Now, I know that you might say that in the morning before you go off to work, but I mean, you know, like today, Lord, please, <laughs> you know. No, no, if you were to come right now, God, that would be so cool because I got this project due and I'm like not ready and uh, I'm going to get chewed up at work today or whatever it might be, right? We should be looking and we should be waiting. It says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, weeks ago, uh, we were talking about these judgments, these seal judgments. And remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're called. Uh, these four riders that are unleashed that represent destruction that's going to happen on the earth. And the first rider was a white horse. And we saw that that was the Antichrist. And he comes as a peacemaker. But on the heels of him, there's another rider that takes uh, the red horse that takes away peace from the earth. And so the Antichrist will come in and preach peace and safety, but that will change relatively quickly. Uh, it's, a, it's a deal with, uh, uh, that's got some strings attached. Uh, the third rider will bring famine, and the fourth horseman brings famine and pestilence. And, you know, we live in, in a world where, you know, the world is much smaller than it used to be. The term that they call that is globalization. Uh, not just because of technology, but because of uh, uh, the ability to travel and, and the ability to communicate uh, uh, in, in, in various ways. But we can see how, how uh, according to the scriptures, it says that a quarter of the earth will perish with this judgment and, and guesstimates of even at 7 million people, that would be 1.7 
by, oh, I have one. Oh, I'll take another one. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you much. About 1.7 mil uh, uh, million uh, people, uh, a billion people would die at, at 7, uh, 7 billion, 1.75 billion. Um, how many of you are, have become familiar recently with the term Ebola? If you follow the news, it's like, what is that? That's like something that we've, we've never heard about. And they're saying that the Ebola virus that is, for, for the most part in Africa, is one of the most deadliest on record. And they say that the actual impact of the Ebola virus will be far great, is far greater than what they're actually saying. There's 2,127 known infections, and that doesn't sound like a whole lot unless that's in your neighborhood. <laughs> Unless, or if one person, it, and they say that that vastly, they vastly underestimate the magnitude of the outbreak. The agency, the World, World Health Organization, said that it's scaling up its response in recognition of the extraordinary measures needed on a massive scale to contain the outbreak in s settings characterized by extreme poverty, dysfunctional health systems, a severe shortage of doctors, and rampant fear. People are being ostracized. There's, 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 there's communities of people that if you've got Ebola or even if you've had it, they're, they're forcing people to live in these communities because they don't want it to spread. Uh, and you know, something like that could spread very quickly. How many of you were a little bit nervous when you read that there were two American Christian relief workers who were coming back to America who were both infected with the Ebola virus? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. Well, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, and um, um, we're going to be looking at the fifth and the sixth seals this morning. The fifth and the sixth seals. Persecution is a word that we've talked about before regarding the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Um, you might recall our discussion on the, uh, uh, the city of Smyrna, what was happening to them. Persecution, if you've been paying attention, is, is, is because of uh, media and because of social media is, is really taking taken, uh, center stage. Uh, there are things that are happening to Christians around the world that, uh, that we can hear about in almost no time at all. And that's just the things that we hear about. So you know that it's much, much worse than that. July 2013, two girls in Pakistan received a copy of the story of Jesus in their native language, Urdu. The Christians who distributed the booklets happily reported that these girls trusted Christ after reading these engaging booklets. And the quote is that two more sisters were added to our family. Just a couple of months later on a Sunday, uh, I don't know if I, yeah, there they are right there. Look at that. They got their books. They're all excited and heard about Jesus. And it says, a couple of, this is from Voice of the Martyrs website. It says, a couple of months later on a sunny Sunday morning, two suicide bombers entered the All Saints Church compound in Peshawar, Pakistan. These Islamists waited until the services were over and the nearly 500 worshipers began to gather for a meal together. At 11.45, they detonated their suicide vest and killed 78 people and injured another 130. The deadliest attack on a Christian minority in the history of Pakistan. And oh, these two precious young girls were ushered into the kingdom. The eyes of the world have turned to northern Iraq, to a city where Jonah first preached God's message thousands of years ago. 
Today, the story of Nineveh, a.k.a. Mosul, uh, isn't of a messenger of God going to Nineveh, but of thousands of his followers being forced to flee the city as we hear these terms that we've never, ever heard about. How many of you heard the term ISIS or IS lately? The Islamic State told Christians if they don't leave Mosul, their alternatives are subjugation to Islam or being forced to follow um, a different God or be, being forced to follow a different God, Allah, or be killed. It is a humanitarian crisis. Voice of the Martyrs is one group that's ministering to both groups of believers. They're caring for over 2,000 displaced Christians who have fled Mosul, and that number will increase. They're working with Christian converts in the region who risk their very lives to witness the love of Jesus to Muslims, even radical and violent ones. You know, there was a song that we were singing a little bit earlier, and I just, as I read that song, you know, I think that if we were in the middle of China in some underground church somewhere, that, that the words might have a little more fervor than kind of what, what we sing it with. Not that you can't sing it with passion, that you can't mean it, but, but you know, the line between being a Christian and being a non-Christian in a lot of other nations is very clear. And you choose one or the other, and when you choose one, it might cost you your life. We need to be praying for persecuted believers throughout the world. Let's all stand for just a moment, and let's take a time and do that. Amen. Father God, we, um, in our nation, um, we talk about losing our rights, our fundamental rights to worship and to do various things. And, and, and we talk about maybe what the future might look like in our nation, Lord, but it is nothing like what other believers are going through throughout this world. It is a very solemn thing, God. Our hearts are with them. These are people. These are families. These are um, uh, sons and daughters. Uh, we read about ISIS, how they're even beheading children. Lord, there's a, there's a word that you have for your people who are persecuted, God. Uh, there's a blessing that you have for those who endure. There's no mistake that every letter that you wrote in this book to the churches is said to he who overcomes, and there's a promise. Lord, give them endurance. Give them strength. God, we just, we just, we just want to join in with what you're doing around the world, in particular for the persecuted ch church. Lord, we pray for advocates to come alongside of them. We thank you for those people groups that are welcoming them, uh, that are taking them in. God, we pray resources. God, there's, they're making decisions about going to the left or going to the right and not knowing how either one of those choices will turn out. Lord, would you lead your people? Lord, in the book of Exodus, you led your people by a pillar of fire and by a cloud by day. And Lord, that you would lead your people glory, whether it be in your presence or whether it be to a place of safety and that you would provide along the way. Father, our hearts are with them and we want to be able to support them any way you would ask us to. So speak by your spirit as we lift them up to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Have a seat if you would. Amen. Let's not forget our brothers and sisters. Every time you read an article or you see a news flash, don't just absorb it and go, wow, pray pray for them. All right, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 says this, when the lamb broke the seal. Who is the lamb? 
Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Why were they slain? Because of the word of God and because of the testimony and because they maintained their testimony. Ah, see that? And they were slain. They cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who uh, were to be killed, even as they had been, uh, would be completed also. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, his name is Skip Heitzig. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in um, uh, Albuquerque. And he said this. He said, um, great persecution is the result of the Great Commission. Great persecution is the result of the Great Commission. And here's the formula. Write this down. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Right? The Great Commission. Now, and then write this down if you would also, Acts 8, 1. So you have Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Acts chapter 8, verse 1. That's easy to remember. And this is what it says in Acts 8, 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement uh, with putting him to death, speaking of Stephen, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. How many of you have read that before? Okay, don't raise your hand on this next question, but how many of us have thought about what that means? I mean, I've read that a thousand times, maybe not a thousand, but I've read it a lot, right? But I've never, I've never stopped to think about that the, they, they were scattered. They, they had to leave, maybe with just the clothes on their back or a few small possessions. I can't even imagine that. Yeah, because great persecution is a result of the Great Commission. If you're going to preach the gospel, and if you're going to stand and maintain your testimony, there will be persecution. There will be. If you're going to live a quiet life, you don't want anyone to know you're a Christian, you know, we shouldn't be talking about religion and politics, then you know you are not going to be persecuted then. But the minute you bring up the name of Jesus, the minute you start to stand for righteousness, the minute you share the truth in love, which is what people need to hear. People need someone who will tell them the truth, not what Hollywood has to say or not what the media has to say. Someone needs to say, well, that's all cool, but I was just reading in the Bible. This is what the Bible says. Oh, you're not going to get that. You're probably going to get, oh, here we go. Oh, Bible man, you know. Oh, what do you, what, what, what's the Bible say? I'm glad you asked that. Let me tell you. That's what folks need to hear. That's what I needed to hear. How about you? When you were lost and dead in your trespasses and your sin, did you need to hear the truth? Oh, I sure did. I praise God for the people who told me the truth. I said, man, what are you doing? You're not, you mean, you're going to go to hell for all eternity. What? Well, you think you're all that? No. It's telling you the truth. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Okay, so these martyrs, um, where are they? They're under the altar in heaven. Interesting place to be. In the Old Testament, the priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the nation. The animal would be killed, and the blood of that animal was literally poured out at the base of the altar. 
And the courtyard was the brass altar, the place of sacrifice. And it was at the base of the altar where the lifeblood of the animal was drained. Blood in the Old Testament symbolizes life. These precious saints, their souls are, are in, at the altar. Their bodies are on the earth. Their blood has been spilled in the streets, but their souls are under the altar. Do you get that? They, they, they've, they've been martyred for their faith, and it tells us why, but they are in heaven having a conversation with the Lamb of God. So they're, 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 they've died tragic deaths, but they're in heaven, and they're conversing with God, with the, uh, the, the Lamb of God. Okay? Uh, in, in one sense, they poured out their life unto death. Uh, they, they represent all martyrs who have died for the faith. Uh, and they encourage Christians who are facing persecution. Uh, they, they assure us that the souls of the martyred are in heaven waiting for the resurrection. And you know what? They're at rest. They're at rest. Paul said in Romans 12, 1, that Christians should live our lives serving God as a living sacrifice. Uh, said that, uh, uh, in, in his last uh, letter to, that he wrote to Timothy, uh, the, the last words that he would write, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is hand. You see the, the language there. Uh, that describes the Christian life, and that's what a true martyr is, someone who is who is a witness, who is, who is pouring out their life. How's your witness, living grace? How's your witness? Don't answer. How's your witness? Now, let me just shift gears real quick. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. You can turn there if you like. I have it on the screen as well. Or rather, Lawrence does. <laughs> Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5. Because this is another reference to these saints who were in heaven under the altar. And it says this. Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them... Uh, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of... Isn't that interesting? As we read about what's happening in Mosul, where they are beheading Christians. It's just interesting. And it's sad. It's almost prophetic, isn't it? And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Okay, let me talk a little theology with you and I'm going to try to get through it and not get too detailed because we could spend two or three months talking about this. And if you went to the prophecy conference, you got your fill. All right? You got your fill. Premillennialist. Premillennialist. These are those who believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is distinct and separate from the rapture. Three weeks ago, we talked about the rapture when at some point in time, Christians all over the world will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air forever. That, that's something that we should be looking forward to and waiting for. Uh, Christ does not, the premillennials uh, uh, believe that Christ does not physically return to earth, uh, uh, as a, and that's, a, that's a, a separate event from the rapture. Two different things. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, if you want to write this down, says that he appears in the air to resurrect the bodies of the Christians as well as those 
whose Christian, uh, those Christians still living caught up to meet with him. So the premillennialists believe that the rapture and the second coming are two different things. That's all that means, all right? Now, they also believe that in the book of Daniel, and if you were with us during our study through Daniel, we talked about the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we talked about the final week, which is the last seven years of the history of the world. It begins with the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel, a peace treaty, if you would. Personally, I believe that the Antichrist will be Muslim because I don't think anybody else can broker a deal with radical Islam but a Muslim. That's just me. And if, if you didn't get Joel Richardson's book, The Middle East Beast, then it's something to read. And it's just something to consider. It's not dogmatic, it's not absolute, but it just makes sense. And there's a whole lot more we'll talk about regarding that. Anyway, he begins with making a covenant with Israel, and halfway in that, he will break that covenant, claim to be Messiah, claim to be God. And for the last three and a half years of that seven-year period, the people of God, in particular the Jews, will be severely persecuted. The tribulation, okay? Now, there's considerable debate about when the rapture will happen. This is interesting. At the Prophecy Conference, I asked Joel Richardson, well, when do you believe the rapture will, rapture will happen? He said, I believe it will happen at the end of the tribulation. And I go, that's interesting. There was another speaker who I spoke to, and I said, well, he was talking about his book, and he said, you know what, I don't even get into the rapture or when the rapture will happen because it doesn't even matter to me. And I go, oh, that's interesting. And then there were a whole bunch of other speakers there who believe that the rapture of the church will happen sort of in the middle of the tribulation or, or what's called pre-wrath, before the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. Not at the beginning, but before the wrath of God is poured out, the church will be raptured. And I thought, isn't that great? But here's the thing. Nobody really knows. Can you say amen? I just demand an amen on that. Nobody, you know, you can, you, you can listen to Kay Arthur, you can listen to, you name uh, 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 David Jeremiah, you can, you know, uh, uh, John MacArthur, I mean, these are biblical scholars, guys who got it going, and gals who got it going on, and they, they might completely disagree on this. And I think it's just interesting, like when I heard Joel say, he said, oh, I believe that it'll be, it'll be post, you know, that after the tribulation, then the church will be raptured. Uh, and he goes, but I've been reading the book on pre-wrath, and that makes sense too, although I don't agree with all of it. And I go, you know, I think it's important. I just think it's important we don't argue over this stuff and get all mad and offended like, well, you know, whatever, dude, you're not even a Christian. What? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? <laughs> you know? It happens. People get out the guns and the cat rapture. No, it can't possibly be Patriot. Okay, listen, you want to go through, through the tribulation? You have at it, bro, all right? Anyway, I say that <laughs> to talk about some of these views. There's a lot of debate. Pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, pre-wrath tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture, okay? Okay, and so just very quickly, I wanted to say a few things about each of them. Pre-tribulation rapture. At the beginning of the final seven-year period, the church will be raptured. At the end of that seven-year period, Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. One of my favorite com commentaries, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, believes that the church will be raptured at the beginning of chapter 4 in Revelation. 
I thought that was interesting. You can read that on your own. And he says that the church is referenced 19 times in the first three, three chapters, but it's not spoken of again until chapter 19. Therefore, the church is raptured. Oh, okay. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. So, pre-tribulation, God has not appointed us to wrath, and the wrath that they believe that is speaking of is the tribulation period. So the church gets raptured, and then the tribulation hits. How many of you like that sound of that? How many of you guys just, just like the sound of that? How many, of you, how many of you are for that? Yeah? Okay. I know some of y'all want to go through it. I know you do. You're looking forward to the tribulation. I know y'all are like, oh, I can't wait. Okay. <laughs> you know, have at it, bro. You know. <laughs> Pre-wrath. We'll skip mid-tribulation. Let's go pre-wrath. It distinguishes between the persecution of the church by the Antichrist and the outpouring of God's wrath on the unbelieving, also called the Day of the Lord. So they separate the two, and they believe that the church will be around for the persecution of the Antichrist, but before the wrath of God is poured out, the church gets delivered. Interesting thought. All believers, they believe, will be around at least till the fifth seal that we just read. Position basically says that the first five seals are, don't represent God's wrath. And they look to Ma Matthew chapter 24 and say that Matthew 24, you can read that later, is the result of the sixth seal. So most pre-wrath believers say somewhere between, uh, between the sixth and the seventh seal is when the church gets raptured. How many of you guys are for that? How many of you guys think that's, that's a cool thing to be here for at least the first part of the tribulation? Let me know. And that the seventh seal opens the trumpet, the bold judgments, which are the wrath of God. Okay? Pre-wrath. And then there's post-tribulation. The rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ all comes at the end of the tribulation, at the, at the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel that last year, all at the same time. And the wrath that God promises to deliver the church from in the letters to the Thessalonians is not the outpouring of God's wrath on earth at the end of history, but the final judgment before his throne. Okay? Lot to think about. Do your research. Do your research. Okay? We as a church hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, but there's evidence of others as well. You can't dogmatically say, but that's what we hold to. Now, now, write this down if you want to take notes. Pan-trib, P-A-N, pan-trib. That's another view that we hold on to as well. So you have pre-tribulation, you have uh, pre-wrath, and you have post-tribulation, and then you have pan-tribulation, P-A-N, pan-tribulation. And that basically says everything will pan out in the end. <laughs> it's all going to pan out. Because if it's post-tribulation rapture, okay, I'm just saying, all the pre-tribulation folks are going to be hot and bothered. It's going to be like, man, we just knew we were going to get raptured out of Yeah, well, you better hunker down, man. We're here for the duration, okay? <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? 
go to all the Calvary Chapel guys and goes, we told you, we told you, you wouldn't listen. <laughs> oh. Verse 10 says, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, God? Doesn't it sound strange? They're in heaven. And they're, they're having a conversation with the Lamb of God. And they're going, when are you going to avenge us? I mean, aren't Christians supposed to forgive? And aren't they not supposed to hold on to stuff like that? God's people are asking him to avenge their enemies. Um, the real question wasn't when, uh, wasn't whether God would judge them, but when God would judge them. How long, O oh Lord? has been the cry of God's people for a long time. I promise you that's the cry of the people of God in Mosul. How long, God? How much more do we have to lose? Right? God, are you there? God, are you listening? Habakkuk said, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. That's a very real question in the midst of persecution. Psalm chapter 3, the psalmist answered it this way, verse 6, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against, uh, against me round about. Huh? Ten thousand? Wow, thousands. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, and, uh, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people, Selah. There's someone who's saying, God, you're going to do your thing, God. It's not a matter of whether you're going to do it, but you know what, when you're going to do it. And you know what, that, that's a good thing to remember, that, that, that God will right the scales one day. That it may not be right now. And we see, we read about what's happening in Mosul. We read about what's happening in Afghanistan and, 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 and other nations. We think, God, when are you going to make this all right? And the time will come when God will make it right. Because he's a sovereign God. There's a timing involved. Here's another point you might want to consider. Let God be your defense. Let him avenge you. You know, they're saying, Lord, when are you going to do this, God? Let God do that. Well, Chuck Smith used to say that if you, if you try to avenge yourself, God will let you. So here's God's answer. God says, death has an appointment. There's a timing involved. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it this way. It says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die. There's a time line involved. And the Lord says to these precious saints, More will die. There's a number that, that has to come in first. I'm in control of that. There will be a time. And it seems like the enemy wins, doesn't it? But this speaks to the sovereignty of God, that he's truly in control of all things. Let's read verse 12 through 17. This is the sixth seal. And we go from conversations above to chaos below. The martyrs have cried out, avenge us. And the unbelievers will cry out, hide us. It says in verse 12, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. 
The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up. Now, you remember John's writing this 2,000 years ago, trying to describe things that are obviously in the... He's describing things that haven't happened yet, trying to describe thermonuclear war 2,000 years ago, if that's what that is. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of its places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders... And the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, uh, that, that means everybody, hid themselves in the caves and, ro- and among the rocks and the mountains. And they s- said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Woo! Okay, I'll take pre-wrath rapture at this point. <laughs> I'll take that for 200 Alex. <laughs> you know. Woo! This is the wrath of the Lamb. Celestial disturbances have always been in connection with the coming Messiah. Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16 says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of, of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. Matthew 24 says it this way, immediately after the tribulation of, the, of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That time is yet to come. It has not happened yet. One of three major earthquakes that we read about in the book of Revelation. You know, if you're from California or used to live in California, the the great question that's always asked is, when will the big one happen? Well, I don't know when the big one will happen, but I tell you, Revelation chapter 6 says a mighty big one's coming. The most destructive earthquake ever was in China in 1556. Almost a million people died. The great San Francisco earthquake, April 18, 1906, killed 700 people and caused $500 million in damages. 8.25 magnitude. Maybe you were in Southern California in 1994, the great Northridge, California earthquake, about 20 miles from Uh, Los Angeles, January 17th, 1994, 4.31 a.m., magnitude of 6.7, 57 deaths, and if that would have happened at rush hour, it would have been way more than that. 9,000 people were injured, $15 billion in damages. But at the end of the tribulation, there will be an earthquake that's even greater than this one. Chapter 16, verse 18. Can you imagine what will cause these events? What will it look like? Carl Sagan spoke of nuclear war, and he said, if there were a nuclear war, he said it could plunge the northern hemisphere into a nuclear winter. One half of mankind could die with the descent of night around the clock and the drop of temperature some 70 degrees. Cataclysmic events. And this is the greatest prayer 
uh, uh, prayer meeting of all time, but it's directed to the wrong thing. They're crying out to the mountains, fall on us. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and we're stunned at the hard-headedness of Pharaoh. I don't know if that's a word or not. Hard-headedness. Maybe you grew up and someone said to you, boy, you hard-headed. Then you kind of understand Pharaoh. After all the plagues and all the judgments, he still didn't get it. With all this going on, the people are crying out. And you would think they would want to get right with God. They say, you know, enough, God. I, I repent. What do I need to do? There's got to be plenty of Christian literature around. Let's say Christians aren't around for this. There's got to be plenty of stuff. I went to a church one time, and it had a brochure. In case of the rapture, read this. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. I that was pretty cool. Yeah, you come to church, and everybody's gone. Hey, there's a flyer. Oh, oh no. Yeah. Uh. They're praying to the wrong thing, and they don't repent. Kind of makes you wonder what it takes, yeah? Warren Worsby said this, If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed, hear this, church. If men and women will not, be, will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. They would rather cry out to the rocks, which maybe many of them worship, than cry out to the rock of ages. They would rather hide from God in fear than run to him in faith. These judgments are meant to wake them up and to cause them to repent, but they don't do it. Hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. What a paradox, huh? Hide us from the Lamb. Ah! Hide us from the Lamb. Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb. But just because he is called a lamb does not mean he's not the lion and the king of kings and the lord of lords it's a good idea to not forget that he is the lamb but he's also the lion who is able to stand who is they ask who is able to stand Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Will you stand because you're a good person? Will you stand because you came to church today before him, before the Lamb of God? Will you stand before the Lamb of God because you're not as bad as the person sitting next to you? Will you stand before the Lamb of God because you're religious or because your parents were religious? Will you stand before the Lamb of God on anything else but the righteousness of Christ? You won't. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
how else will you have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Let me read a quick story to you. Close it up. And we'll take our love offering. Larry Tomzak, in his book, Straightforward Rope of the Scene. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Some of the groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. How can God judge us? What a ripoff. How can he know about suffering? Snapped a cynical brunette. She jerked back a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number. The Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror and beatings, torture and death. In another group, a black man lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. I was lynched for no crime except being black. We suffocated in slave ships, being wrenched from loved ones, toiled till only death gave us release. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such oppressed minorities. Each had a complaint against God for the evil they had suffered that he permitted in the world. How privileged God was to live in heaven where there was no repression. All this sweetness and light, no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred. Indeed, uh, what did God know about the hassles man had in the world? So each of the oppressed minorities sent out a leader chosen because he suffered the most. There was a Jew, a black, an untouchable from the caste of India, an illegitimate son, a prisoner of war, an Indian, one from a Siberian slave camp. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case, and it was rather simple. Before God would be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God would be sentenced to life on earth as a man. But because he was God, they certainly certain safeguards to be sure he did not use his divine powers to help himself. Let him be born a minority, a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted so that many will question who his father really is. Let him champion a cause so just, uh, so just but so radical that it brings down under him the hate, condemnation, and eliminating efforts of the establishment and every major tradition and established religious authority. Let him be the object of put-downs, ridicule. Let him be spat upon and labeled as mad. Let him be betrayed by his dearest friends. Let him be incited on false charges. Tried before a prejudiced jury. Convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him experience what it is to be terribly alone completely abandoned by every living thing. Let him be tortured. Let him die. And let him die the most humiliating death. Then, let his name live on so that for centuries it would be used as a common curse word in moments of rage. As each leader stepped forward, and announced his portion of the sentence. Loud approval went up before the great throng of people. The last had finished pronouncing sentence was a long silence. 
No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, they all knew God had already served his sentence. And therefore, he was fit to judge. And he's fit to give life to whosoever would receive it. Father, in the name of Jesus, the name that's above all names, Jesus, you came to rescue lost people. You came to set free the sinner not just so that we could live clean, productive lives, lawful lives. You came for our hearts. And you came so that we would see your love and see how long you have been chasing us and trying to get our attention so that we would stop and turn to you and turn away from ourselves so that we might be with you forever. What kind of love is that? In our worst seasons of life, you are right there with us, begging us to come to you to receive grace and mercy in the time of need. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray anyone here who has not embraced your grace. I pray, God, that we would embrace you as our Savior, not as our judge, and that you would stir in the hearts of your people, just like you did mine years ago. If it hadn't have been for you, I would have never come to you. I would have just kept on living my life the way I was living it. But you called me and put it in my heart to answer, and I did. Folks, today, if you have not responded to the call of Jesus on your life, today would be a good day. You can walk out of here and have your name written in his book.